While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. At the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant, and the forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, then they shall away the daily sacrifices, and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them, but shall join with them by intrigue, and some of those who understand, who are, some of and some of understanding shall fall, to refine them, purify them, and make them white, until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper until till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God. He, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, which, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with the foreign God, which he shall acknowledge, and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall fall at his heels, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to come together once more. Uh, at this time, we commit to you, uh, uh, commit to you ourselves as we hear the Lord of the Word of God. Um, and help us all to be able to accept this Word uh, with open hearts and to be able to grow closer to you and grow as Christians, Lord Jesus. In your most holy name we pray. Amen. Siji, can you all at least smile at me, please? A little more. I'll tell you my predicament, okay? Uh, I'll tell you how tough the week was. Tuesday Bible study, I had to take John chapter 7, explain all the historical context about uh, the Feast of the Boots and everything. Uh, Thursday, uh, in the Bible study, I had to deal with John, sorry, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, the toughest passage, I think, in the New Testament. In fact, uh, they questioned me so much about two words, but now the righteousness of God, verse 21. For about 20 minutes, these people questioned me, and so we had to deal with that. Friday morning Bible study, we had to do uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, another tough passage. And if you don't smile at me for this passage, uh, I think I'll make it tougher for you. But anyway, so I went to my wife last night for a little comfort, saying that, you know, I've dealt with all these tough passages, and uh, in an inimitable way that only a wife can say, she said, uh, that's your calling. That was, that was very comforting and very encouraging as well. So with that encouragement and your smiles, I stand here. Uh, so uh, please give me your undivided attention. I know this is dry history. Uh, uh, obviously, this is not a devotional passage that you look into when you're feeling down or something. It is not like a psalm. But when you look at it, the beauty of it and the depths of it and the specificity of the prophecy that God has given, uh, we see how sovereign God is 
and the kind of truths that he's teaching us through this particular passage, especially about the kind of wars and suffering and trials that Israel had to go through. So we learn uh, several things about suffering uh, from the word of God. But, uh, but before that, let me just test uh, Abhijit's technical skills again. It's on. Oh, okay. All right, okay, that's working. So some time ago, uh, a TV news channel ran a week-long feature on its evening news program. It featured a kind of an advertisement where a little child was praying, and the prayer went this way. A father who art in heaven, what about the earthquake in Mexico City? The airline crash that killed hundreds of people, the AIDS epidemic, and the starvation in Africa. And if she was praying last week, we may as well add the war in Syria. And the advertisement finished with this tagline, Is God punishing us? Is God punishing us? Suffering. It's not a very pleasant word. But it is a very, very necessary topic to be discussed. Particularly, it is a pertinent and a necessary topic to be discussed from the pulpit in the church. And the reason is that the word of God tells us the certainty of suffering in the life of the believer. None of us who's a believer can escape suffering. It's just that the degree of suffering may differ from one person to another, one believer to another, but the fact of the matter is there's a certainty of suffering for each of the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Suffering plagues our world in its many forms. It affects us physically, emotionally, psychologically, and whatever its manifestations, extended suffering can definitely crush the body and the spirit as well. Now, some people even suffer from actions and events they have no control over and even can't foresee. Since suffering is a given in the life of the believer, the right question would not be so much the why of suffering as the how of suffering. The right question ought not to be, why is God allowing so much of suffering in the world? Or, why is there so much of suffering in the world in light of the fact that there exists a sovereign God? But the fact of the matter is, the right questions ought to be, how do I suffer given the fact that suffering is a given? So the questions that ought to be raised right now are these. How do I go through suffering and trials? Or better, are there truths about suffering that will help me navigate through suffering in the right way? Are there truths about suffering that will help me navigate through suffering or through it in a God-glorifying manner? The answers are all found in the Word of God. Now, if you remember... Let me just uh, give you the historical context of the passage and take you verse by verse. We'll go a little slow, and if I take a little more time today, please pardon me, but bear with me, please, because we'll need to understand the passage and go step by step. If you remember the context, Daniel receives a revelation of the future, and the future revelation or the revelation about the future included uh, that Israel would be engulfed with a war a war that would engulf Israel. And Daniel was so troubled about it because the, the people had just returned from Babylon or from Medo-Persia back to their land. And all of a sudden, this occasion of uh, the particular uh, vision that Daniel received shattered any hope he might have had that Israel would enjoy her newfound freedom and peace. And so he prayed for understanding and the angel revealed to him four periods of wars that would engulf Israel. So the angel is revealing to Daniel from his time period till eternity, and he said there'll be four time periods of wars and suffering and tribulation for the nation of Israel. And he talked about these four time periods. The first period is from Persia to Alexander the Great, 539 B.C. to 323 B.C. We saw that last time when, when I spoke. That was in verses 1 through 4. And then we talked about the second period as well, which is the struggle of the Ptolemaics and the Seleucids, the northern kings and the southern kings. We'll talk more about that a little bit today. So that was in verses 5 through 20. 
So today, we will specifically talk about two individuals that come out of the fights of these kingdoms. And uh, the third period is under a man by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which is 175 BC to 164 BC. And this man prefigures the Antichrist, the Antichrist who is going to come at the time of tribulation. And the fourth period, of course, is the eschatological period uh, called the Great Tribulation that we will see in verses 36 to 45. So the angel reveals to Daniel, starting from his time till eternity, all the suffering that Israel is going to go through. But he says specifically, Israel is going to go through four periods of suffering, which is all these four. Going back to a little bit of history again before we start. Antiochus III in in Antioch, this man, now we covered all of this history last time, and uh, I will send this particular uh, slides uh, on the groups as well for you to go through again after the sermon is done. So Antiochus III Magnus, he died in 187 BC, and his son took over, who is Seleucus IV, Philopater. So when his son took over, he tried to reunite Alexander's kingdom, which is the northern uh, kingdom and the southern kingdom, and he tried to make it as big as Alexander's kingdom. But he failed because there was another kingdom that was rising up from the west, which is the Roman Empire. He underestimated Roman Empire, and so he wanted to uh, unite these two empires, and he failed. But this man, Antiochus III uh, Magnus, he was a great military leader. He was a great military leader by, uh, in his own right. And his eldest son, Seleucus IV, this man, uh, he succeeded his father. He took over the throne and he started taxing his people, including the Jews, to pay the taxes to Rome. So he started taxing the Jews to pay the taxes back to Rome. And so the Jewish people were, were very frustrated with this man. And there was a Jewish tax collector who worked for him. His name was Heliodorus. And he went and poisoned this king and killed him. So the assassination of this particular king set the stage for the terrible persecutions that would befall the Jews. And the earlier kings, all of these kings are described just as a background to talk about this particular man, a man by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And so the movement of this chapter is towards two significant personages. One, this man, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who prefigures the Antichrist, and then the final, the Antichrist, who would come at the end of history, at the time of tribulation. So the rest of the chapter is about these two individuals, one who prefigures Antichrist and the real Antichrist who comes at the end of history. So today's passage will reveal to us two truths that you need to understand and I need to understand about suffering as we go through the history of Israel under, the, under these two men. So Daniel chapter 11, verses 21 through 45. Daniel chapter 11, as was read to us, verses 21 through 45. So in verses 21 through 35, you will see that the Lord's purposes and presence are realized in suffering by those who know and trust him. Did you hear that? The Lord's purposes and presence are realized in suffering by those who know and trust him. There's a richness in suffering. Hear me, please. There's a richness in suffering that could completely be missed if you don't trust God through it. There's a, there's a richness in suffering that could be completely missed if you don't trust God through it. And that's the message of these verses. Antiochus IV Epiphanes would cause turmoil, killing many Jews, but the godly ones in Israel would trust God to purify them as a nation. And how did all of this happen? It, it was uh, unraveled by the angel in three steps. The first one, the first step is that Antiochus IV Epiphanes would secure the throne through deceit, war against the Ptolemies, and gain much plunder. Verses 21 through 28a, but I'll just read three verses for you, uh, some scattered verses just to highlight what's in the text. So verse 21, follow me please. In his place shall arise a contemptible person. Look what he's called. He is a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries, which is deceit. Verse 25, 
and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. The first part of verse 28. And he shall return to his land with great wealth. Now, last time I spoke, we talked about all of the wars that happened between the Ptolemaic Empire and the Seleucid Empire. I also mentioned, just a little bit of history here, I also mentioned that Ptolemy II was the one who sponsored the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, which is called the Septuagint. This is the man who's responsible for it. And uh, uh, there were some alliances uh, where uh, women were exchanged, women were given to the other kingdom just to have an alliance. And here is Cleopatra that was given uh, in that sense. Now, this is not the same Cleopatra that Mark Antony would marry a hundred years later. This is a different one. But here, today we are talking about this particular man, Antiochus IV Epiphanes and Ptolemy VI. Uh, history is done till here, and we, we, pick, we pick up on that history or in this passage from the last king that we are talking about. I mentioned just a little earlier that the Seleucid king who would succeed, Seleucus IV, was the younger son of uh, uh, Antiochus III, namely Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, we saw that he was not supposed to get onto the throne because it was the son of uh, Seleucus IV who was supposed to be the king. But this man came through deceit from a back door. He came through intrigued. He deceived people. And then he got onto the throne uh, while he was not supposed to be the king. And so that's exactly what the Bible says here. uh, The Bible says that he became king by intrigue. He sat on the throne. And the moment he sat on the throne, he called himself Epiphanes. And in minting his coins, he joined the name Epiphanes with the word Theos, which means God manifest, the illustrious one. And so he called himself Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which is Antiochus IV, the, the illustrious one, the glorious one. You see where the prefigure of Antichrist is taking shape. Uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the glorious one, was now sitting on the throne. So uh, Antiochus IV was very successful in his battles. He was very fierce. He was bloodthirsty. And in his battle against the Egyptians, he goes and battles with Ptolemy VI. Now, he had a strange policy of deceit. And the policy was to throw his intended victims off guard by offering him friendship and alliance. And he would go and convince them that he is actually an ally, but all of a sudden, he would maneuver in such a way for an advantageous position to catch them off guard and go for war against them. And that's exactly what he did with Ptolemy VI. He went and told him that he was actually fighting for him when he was actually fighting against him, and the king comes to know about it, and somehow they sit at the table to have a banquet but each of them having wrong intentions of capturing that particular kingdom. And so somehow there was a peace truce that was made, and there was a great plunder that was taken by Antiochus the Epiphanes, and he goes back to his kingdom of Syria. The Bible says he returned with much plunder. That's what the Bible is talking about. Now, this is dry history. As we progress on and get towards the Antichrist, it'll get more and more interesting as to what would happen in the future. But we must understand very specifically what happened in history and how specific the Bible is about prophecy. To the detail of two kings sitting at a banquet table and cheating each other over the table is also mentioned hundreds of years prior to the actual happening of the event. That is the specificity of the Bible. That is, a, that is how specific God is in his prophecy because he doesn't just know future, he ordains future. That's the sovereignty of our God. Second thing. Second thing, Antiochus IV Epiphanes would turn his interest to Israel, deceive the Jews, and desecrate the temple. Verses 28b through 32a, but I'll just read a couple of verses for you. Look at verse 31, please. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate 
verse 32a, the first part of verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Now, we now arrive at the main point of the verses of uh, 21 through 35, that particular portion. It is without question the appointed time that verse 29 is talking about. In many ways, as the God of history orchestrates his plans for his people. Now, this is what's happening. Antiochus once again launches a campaign against the south. Now, this man, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who is ruling the Seleucid Empire right now, this is the Egyptian Empire or the Ptolemaic Empire in the south. So the king of the north, this is, this is the king of the south. He launches one more. Now, I just said in the previous verses that this man uh, became the king through intrigue and through deceit, and he launched an attack against the Egyptians, and he went back with a lot of plunder. Now, he gets more greedy, and he wants to come back the second time. Now, this time, the Bible says that things are different. Antiochus encountered, look at the Bible, it says he encountered opposition from the ships of Kittim. Now, Kittim is Cyprus. Uh, There were ships that came from here. They were Roman ships, and they came and harbored in this place called Alexandria. Why did that happen? It happened because there was a Roman commander by the name of Gaius Popilius. He met Antiochus IV Epiphanes at this particular place called Alexandria, and he handed him a letter from the Roman Senate. What did the letter say? The letter asked Antiochus IV Epiphanes to leave Egypt and go back without fighting a war against Egypt. In fact, there's a famous historical moment in that where uh, this Roman general drew a big circle around this man in the sand, and he says, you must give me a reply without stepping over or outside this particular boundary that I've drawn. And very wisely, this man, uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, he goes back humiliated. He doesn't war against Egypt. He tries to go back humiliated, but because of his humiliation, he tries to uh, vent his anger against Israel and Jerusalem in particular. He was bloodthirsty. He had to fight a war, and he was humiliated here, and he couldn't take up war against Rome. They were a huge empire. Since they want him to go back, he tries to go back and vents all of his anger and fury against this nation of Israel. What does he do? So this is where history gets very, very interesting. He sent his general or a commander by the name of Apollonius. And this Apollonius, he came and he pretended to come in peace to Jerusalem. He comes with a massive army, and on the Sabbath day, when the Jews were all practicing Sabbath, they were not doing any work, this man enters Jerusalem, Uh, pretending to be entering in peace and he massacres thousands of Jews on the Sabbath day because on the Sabbath they would not retaliate. But he did something else too. He rewarded the apostate Jews uh, just like there was a man by the name of uh, uh, Menelaus who was the high priest then. And uh, he forsook the God of the Bible. He forsook all of the commandments of Yahweh and he went to the side of uh, this Hellenistic empire and tried to Hellenize the whole empire, and uh, he was for the Seleucid Empire. But in 167 BC, there is something that is interesting that happened, where the persecution of the Jewish religion came to a climax. Now listen very carefully, please. All the religious practices, such as circumcision and possession of scripture, sacrifices and feast days, were all abolished by the king, And he went on to say that there is a penalty of death for anybody or any Jew who practices all these things. But it reached a little more crescendo on 15th of December 167 BC when an altar or the idol of Zeus, the Greek god, was taken right into the temple. And this man placed it on the altar and he sacrificed a pig on the altar, desecrating the temple completely. And that the Bible calls as the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation is a historical reality, and we know from the rest of the scripture that we read that Antiochus used flattery in order to entice people to support his policies. And this further corrupted the Jews who were already corrupt and who were already siding him as well. So that's the second thing that we looked at. Thirdly and lastly in this particular point, the godly Jews in Israel would oppose Hellenization and remain true to the Lord in spite of the severe persecution. Verses 32b, 
to 35. Let me read for you all the verses because this is beautiful. But the law, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by the sword and flame by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive little help, and many shall join themselves uh, to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may, uh, they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. You see the last phrase there? Until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Now the point here that the vision is making, or the angel is making in the vision, is that even in this dark period, there were faithful believers in Israel. Even in this dark period, there were faithful Jews in Israel, and he calls them the people who knew their God. The people who knew their God. Now let me just quote for you one verse from First Maccabees. I don't believe Maccabees is an inspired book. Uh, I'm just quoting it just like I would quote any other historical book. First Maccabees 1, 62 and 63, they say this. Many, is, many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. This is what historically happened. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant, and they did die. They did die. Now, the foremost of the opposers... The men who rose to oppose this man, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, was a man by the name of Matathias, who was later given the name of Judah Maccabees. He had five sons, three of whom were Judas, Jonathan, and Simon, and all of them were also called Maccabees because they opposed this man, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And Maccabees means hammer or terminator. So they went and opposed in a series of battles the advances of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And the, Mac, uh, and the Maccabees uh, joined uh, several people in their ranks and they went and fought against the Syrian army through a series of brilliant military victories and most of the commanders of the Syrian army were destroyed by these people. As a result, what happened was the rededication of the temple to Yahweh on the 14th of December, 164 BC. And still the Jews celebrate it as the festival of Hanukkah. You've heard of the festival, Hanukkah? Still the Jews celebrate it as the festival of Hanukkah, which means the temple was rededicated. It was desecrated by Antiochus IV Epiphanes, recaptured by Maccabees, and rededicated to Yahweh. And Antiochus's persecutions gave impetus to some other movement in Israel. It was called Hasidism or Hasidism, which means godly people. And this, this Hasidism uh, advocated strict adherence to Mosaic law and the traditions of Judaism. Now, even today, the strictest Jews call themselves Hasidists or Hasidic Jews. Now, uh, this Hasidism movement resulted in the spiritual renewal of Israel until the time of Jesus. And from this particular movement, two sects came out who would show up later in the New Testament at the time of Jesus. One were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a result of this Hasidism movement. The second one was a small minority group called the Essenes. The Essenes were the people who separated themselves and went and lived near the Dead Sea, they were the ones who wrote all the scrolls that were later found by us as the Dead Sea Scrolls. So these two communities would show up later on in the New Testament. And because of their stand, many faithful Jews were killed and tens of thousands of them were slaughtered in these persecutions and many others died fighting the battle. And the Bible talks about the time of the end. That came when... Antiochus IV Epiphanes, in an exploration in Persia, died in 163 BC, and he died a horrible death. But the fact of the matter here is that Daniel received assurance that the predicted persecution would run its course until the end, and the purification of his people would come eventually, if not fully, at least in part, under the persecution of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. So the godly in Israel would oppose Hellenization and remain true to the Lord in spite of the severe persecution. The application to all of us is this. How are you handling suffering in your life? How am I handling suffering in my life? You and I can rightly respond to suffering in one of two ways, or both ways, better. 
with a passive response. Number two, with an active response. What is a passive response to suffering? What is a passive Christian response to suffering? Passive response would have to do with humbly affirming God's character. We humbly affirm God's sovereignty. We affirm God's goodness. We affirm God's wisdom and trust him and his plan for your life. This response is not signified by much outward change in your behavior. Rather, it usually expresses itself in quiet disposition, thoughtful meditation, and enduring suffering with patience and humble submission to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, knowing that he is not only sovereign, but he is also a loving Heavenly Father who loves us. And usually, these kind of passive responses to suffering give rise to active responses as well. That is when you meditate on God's character, cultivate patience, and joyfully submit to him in suffering, your desire will often translate into an outward expression for God. So what are these outward active responses? Let me mention for you a few of them that I could jot down. Number one, communing with God by reading and meditating upon the word of God. Communing with God by reading and meditating upon the word of God. Secondly, individual prayer as well as corporate prayer. Thirdly, reading sound biblical literature about suffering. I'm not saying any biblical literature, but sound biblical literature about suffering. Number four, repenting of any particular sin that has become evident during your trial or during your suffering. Number five, serving others as a follower of the suffering servant. And number six, intentional fellowship in your local church through corporate worship, small groups, or discipleship. So these are some of the active responses that you and I can have for our suffering. But both passive and active responses provide you and me with added benefit of true healing. They bring us the added benefit of true healing. Afflictions are more profitable to us when we draw near to God. So my question this morning to you and I is this. How are we handling suffering in our lives? So in verses 21 through 25, we saw that uh, the Lord's purpose and presence are realized in suffering by those who know and trust him. Then there's a second thing uh, or a truth that you need to understand about suffering and I need to understand about suffering. And that is in verses 36 through 45. These are very, very interesting verses because they are yet future to us. What we talked about so far is past and it's dry history, I understand. But what we're going to talk about is future and the time of tribulation. Please look into your Bibles because this is a bit of eschatology. Now, they say that the Lord gives us insight into his word and encouragement from it to face the trials of this age. The Lord gives us insight into his word and encouragement from it to face the trials of this age. It is from God's word that we understand his ways and his workings and we find comfort from his word. That's precisely what we learn from the rest of the prophecy. The Antichrist will defy himself. He will defy himself and rule with military might but die at Christ's second coming to end the tribulation. And we see all of this in two parts. We look at it one by one. And I'll, I'll be a little slow for this for all of us to understand the details. The first part. The Antichrist will set himself up as God to rule by military power. Look at verses 36 to 39, please. I'll read all the verses for you. And the king shall do as he wills. Or let me just read verse 36 for you. And the king shall do all uh, as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. Now there is an undetermined gap of time between verse 35 and verse 36. Because verse 35 ended in about 163 BC. Verse 36 begins at a time that we don't know about and is yet future to all of us. So we have moved from the appointed times that the Bible talks about, from our perspective, to the time of the end, which is future. 
And the events described here cannot be about Antiochus IV Epiphanes because he did not do things that are described here. In fact, uh, this verse says, uh, here is this Antichrist who will magnify himself and exalt himself about everything that is called God. Because Antiochus IV did not do such a thing. He was a very devoted follower of Zeus, his own God. But here, the passage is talking about the Antichrist who will come at the end of time, during tribulation, who will exalt himself and call himself God. Now, there are certain descriptions that are given about him from verses 36 to 39. Uh, Look at a few of this. He will act in self-will. He will exalt himself. He will magnify himself above every God. He will blaspheme the true God. He will succeed for a limited period of time. Now look at how God has ordained his success too. He will succeed for a limited period of time. And he will be an irreligious person. He will also place confidence in military might. So that is about the Antichrist, the description that we see in these four verses. But lastly, now we come to the climax of the vision and the passage, and we have a lot more details about how history would unravel for us in the future. Listen to me very carefully, please. The Antichrist will be attacked repeatedly, but will die at the second coming of Christ, which ends the tribulation. Verses 40 through 45, I will not read those verses for you. It was read out to us by Joseph, but I will explain all the verses for you bit by bit so we'll understand what's going to happen in the future. The Antichrist will be attacked repeatedly, but will die at the second coming of Christ, which ends the tribulation. Now, these verses describe for us a series of military maneuvers that will take place during the last few years of tribulation, the last three and a half years, and that is called the Great Tribulation. In fact, Jesus called it the time of Jacob's trouble. So keep in mind that when Daniel is talking about north and south, his point of reference is always Jerusalem because he's talking about the holy city, Jerusalem. So from Jerusalem, whatever is north, we need to consider that, and whatever is south, we need to consider that as well. So that is the starting point, Jerusalem. So the king of the south, I think, refers to a series of alliance of armies that could include the present-day Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, and uh, a few other North African nations. So all these in the end time could form an alliance, and that is called the king of the south by the Bible. Now, I don't want to get into speculation. I don't like speculative interpretation of prophecy. Let me just uh, tell you what the Bible says and uh, what is now revealed to us in history. And some of you are smiling. I don't know what the smiles are for. I'm not going to get into speculation about who the Antichrist is, whether he's sitting in the church or outside the church and all of that. But Uh, By the way, uh, I was just uh, googling up about how many names are there for the probable Antichrist, and guess uh, what name came up? Did you say Barney? (laughs) No, it really said Barney, but it said Barney the dinosaur, thankfully. (laughs) Otherwise, uh, if it was really Barney, I wouldn't be standing here this morning and preaching. But we don't know who the Antichrist is. I'm not even sure if he exists right now in the world. He himself knows that he is the Antichrist because he will be revealed at that time of tribulation. Now, the king of the south that the Bible talks about is an alliance of the southern uh, countries. Uh, it could be Egypt and uh, North African countries, Saudi Arabia and all of that. Now, the king of the north could be Russia and Turkey and Syria and the regions of former USSR. So all of these countries would together form an alliance. These countries would form an alliance, and they would go on war against this man, the Antichrist, the Antichrist who's sitting in Jerusalem in the end. Now listen carefully. The Antichrist tries to consolidate power, and he will face a series of oppositions. And so what he does is he will invade this beautiful land, which is Israel, and he will pitch his tent in the temple of Jerusalem. So towards the end of tribulation, this is very, very interesting. Towards the end of tribulation, if you look into the Bibles very carefully, it says he will hear rumors that there are armies which are coming from the east. Do you see that? Now, some interpreters say that all these 200 million soldiers 
could be from China because it has such a great population. Possible, but I'm not getting into speculation. So let me just say, because they say it's East, let me just say it's Iran, uh, India, Pakistan, even Korea, Japan, China, all of these nations might send uh, armies to come and fight this man from the East. So you have kings of the North, kings of the South, and even armies from the East coming and closing in towards Jerusalem for the final battle. These battles will range over sea and land as well. And uh, Revelation chapter 14, if you look at it, it's talking about blood flowing to the height of a horse's bridle. That's about four to five meters. Blood flowing to the height of a horse's bridle. Obviously, when so many people come and war, there would be blood flowing to the height of a horse's bridle. And as Antichrist prepares to go to war, he will set up his military headquarters in Jerusalem. And the Bible says it is between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea, which is right on Mount Zion. That's where the temple stands. And the mountain on which this battle would take place in Hebrew is called Har Megiddo. In translation, anglicized, in English it's called Armageddon. So that's the battle of Armageddon that's going to take place, where the kings of the north, kings of the south, and kings from the east, all of these nations would form alliances and would come against the Antichrist and come into the valley of Megiddo for the battle of Armageddon. Look at verse 45, very interesting. Last verse. It doesn't tell us anything about how the Antichrist will be defeated, but it only says that the Antichrist's death or his cutting off will be sudden, swift, and unexpected. But if you remember in Daniel chapter 7 when we studied it, verse 11 says the little horn who is the Antichrist is judged and is cast into blazing flames. You remember that? In chapter 7, the little horn is cast into blazing flames. Let me read for you the explanation that Paul gives in the New Testament, the authoritative explanation given by an apostle in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Look at this. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Isn't that beautiful? Now here is wars going on. All the nations collide together. The Antichrist is there. So much of bloodshed. And uh, the nations are getting destroyed. People are getting killed. And all of a sudden, the Antichrist is suddenly cut off or destroyed by the breath of the mouth, by the breath of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glorious coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I wish I could explain the battle to you from my imagination. I've tried to imagine it, but our words would fail me. But John was given a small peek into how all this would unravel in the book of Revelation. I will not quote the reference for you. Find it yourself. But I just want to read for you and listen to me this beautiful unraveling of how it's going to happen. John says this. I saw heaven standing, standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called the faithful and true. Who is this? The Lord Jesus Christ. With justice, he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He, he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Who are those? The saints, all of us. At the rapture, Christ came for the church. At the second advent, he will come with the church. So all the saints are behind him, riding on white horses, all of us who are saved. Look at the next passage. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Look at the audacity of these armies. They all come towards Jerusalem. They see the Lord Jesus Christ coming, and they want to fight against him. What happens? But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had performed all the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those he had, those he, uh, had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. And two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So that is the second coming. And the beast and the false prophet were taken and they were thrown into the lake of fire. For how long? A thousand years, the millennial kingdom. And after a thousand years, 
Satan is released again. He will go to deceive the nations again and make war. And you talk about Gog and Magog and all of that. The Bible, uh, Daniel doesn't talk about it here, so I, want, I don't want to go beyond the text. But the application for all of us is this. What insights have you gained from the word to face your trials? What insights have you gained from the word to face your trials? Let me just take five more minutes and finish. Let me give you one insight from scripture. I think John, uh, John Vergis, uh, when uh, this is a difficulty I have in Tuesday Bible study because I'm teaching through John. I have John Vergis, I have John the Baptist, and I have John Paul. So when I say John, I, I don't know which, people don't know which John I'm referring to. So this is John Vergis. When he was speaking, he, he kind of quoted this. In Psalm 73, Asaph confesses his frustration and his sinful response to the prosperity of the wicked. He sees the wicked prospering, and he is frustrated about it, and he confesses his sinful response of frustration. And the question that comes to his mind is this. How could the God who promised blessing to the righteous allow the wicked to prosper and even to persecute the righteous? How could God, who promised to bless the righteous, not just allow suffering upon us, but allow those people to come and persecute us. And Asaph, towards the end of the psalm, he gains an eternal perspective, and he understands that the success of the wicked has actually led them to arrogance and rebellion against God, but suffering has caused him to cling closer to God. Suffering has caused him to cling closer to God. So we read in Psalm 73 and the rest of the Bible and the witness of the saints through the ages that God turns suffering to blessings as the nearness of God is more important than all the other worldly blessings that we could get. The nearness of God is more important to us than all the worldly blessings that we could ever get. Let me share for you a beautiful story that really touched me. A pastor was once sharing about one of the most disturbing aspects of his pastorate. And he said there was a woman by the name of Emma who was a Holocaust survivor who was at one point or one day standing outside the pastorate, uh, uh, outside the church, and she was just insulting Jesus at the top of her voice. And this pastor, he goes outside to see her, and then he didn't know what to say. Obviously, she was in a lot of pain. She's a Holocaust survivor, lost all of her family. So he goes and says, you're insulting Jesus. Why don't you go in and tell him what your problem is? So the pastor stays outside. The church is full. This woman, Emma, walks into the church. She disappears in the crowd for about an hour. And the pastor gets worried. Is she disturbing the church inside? So she goes in. He goes in to see what's happening. And this, this woman is right at the altar. The church had an altar. Right at the altar. And there's a cross there. And she is lying prostrate at the foot of the cross. And the man goes and pats her on the shoulder. She gets up with tears in her, tears in her eyes. And she looks at him. And she says, after all, he is near. After all, he is near. What insights have you gained from the word to face trials? So what's the point of this morning's sermon? The whole passage basically says, you will experience the Lord's presence in suffering when you gain insights from the word about it. You will experience the Lord's presence in suffering when you gain insights from the word about it. When you understand what God's word says about suffering, you will draw near to him as you go through it. You will draw near to him as you go through it. And I think I mentioned this particular thing uh, earlier in one of my sermons, probably years ago. So let me just uh, quote uh, this particular thing and finish with this illustration. And thank you for your patience, by the way. There's a man by the name of Elie Wiesel who uh, was a survivor of the dreaded Nazi camp, uh, concentration camp in Auschwitz. And he wrote all of his experiences in a book called The Night. And one of the, the, one of the incidents that he narrates is about the harrowing experience that he had to go through to see the execution of two Jewish men and a Jewish boy. And these three men were taken to the gallows. These three people were taken to the gallows. And to the, the two Jewish men shouted, long live liberty, and they immediately died. But this young fellow, he was taken to the gallows and the news was put around him. He was not heavy enough and so he struggled for about half an hour. And as he was struggling in the throes of death for about half an hour, all the Jews who were watching, including Elie Wiesel, 
they had this question in their minds, where is God in all of this? We are his promised covenant people. Where is God in all of this? And this man writes in his book, The Night, as these voices were getting bigger and bigger, somewhere within me there was another voice that said, Really, where is God in all of this? Can't he see the suffering? And then this man writes, Equally out of nowhere, there came a voice within my heart that said, Eli, you really want to know where God is? Right there hanging in the gallows. Where else? Right there hanging in the gallows. Where else? We are given evidence in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, not just to say that the Lord ordains our suffering, but also to say that when we suffer in him, he suffers with us. He suffers with us as well. Right there hanging on the gallows. I think as we go through suffering, we can be sure that he understands because he went through one of the most gruesome, ignominious of deaths on the cross. Thank you for your patience and may God bless you. And I hope you are blessed by uh, the word of God. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the specific prophecies. And as we looked at these, uh, this particular chapter, chapter 11 of Daniel, over the last two months, Lord, we are amazed at about 150 specific details, details that were fulfilled to a T. How sovereign you are, O Lord. And help us to trust you, even as you take us through sufferings, to trials and tribulations. Thank you for the insight into the word that you've given us about how history is going to unravel. But thank you for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Because at the end, Christ Jesus is the victor. We want to thank you for that. And help us with that hope to go through this life, with that confidence to go through this life, and glorify you in everything that we go through. We want to thank you once again for everything. In Jesus' name.